You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Consequently, the essential basis is, first, that the North Vietnamese troops should withdraw totally to North Vietnam. Then, the internal political solution of South Vietnam should be left for the South Vietnamese people alone to decide between themselves. We are not continuing a war in order to give total victory to our allies. We want to give them a reasonable opportunity to participate in a political struggle. But we also will not make a settlement which is a disguised form of victory for the other side. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace, and this is where this story is going to get complicated. Uh, you have an agreement that's sitting there that the South is uneasy with because it does not get all the troops of the North Vietnamese troops out of South Vietnam. The Americans are trying to push this thing through um, to get the war over with, and the North, sensing all this, uh, will get uh, where they start. Um, being difficult to deal with and that will lead to a sort of a breakdown in this in the back and forth that leads to some pretty heavy consequences uh, in the war going into Christmas Vietnam, after October Kissinger refused to go back to Vietnam so he came and uh, we were told countless times by him by Ambassador Bunker that we should modify our position, we should do this, we should do that. They had obtained some changes, you know, to uh, please us, but they couldn't get everything we wanted. Uh, we said, well, you know, there are still some uh, substantial issues that are not resolved and we're not going to decide. And when we were threatened of brutal reaction, we said, oh, we know what brutal reaction means. We accept them. At that time, it was a calculated move from our part. We say, all right, if we were the U.S. Uh, side, they have two options. Either do something drastic in South Vietnam or bomb the North. Here you're going to hear uh, Mr. Negroponte say, hey, we, we told the North Vietnamese, our president's prepared to take drastic action if there's not an agreement here. Um, and there's only a couple of options there as to what that can be, and uh, and that leads to Operation Linebacker Two, which is the Christmas bombing of North Vietnam. We told them several times. We warned them that uh, our president would resume bombing of the North. They seemed not to believe the nature of this threat. They seem to believe that uh, the president would be inhibited from
from the bombing because the electoral trend in the United States had brought in a Congress that was going to oppose bombing and because the general attitude as demonstrated in public opinion polls in the United States uh, was opposed to resumption of the bombing.
walked by the position three times. That's right. And you keep coming back. That, uh, and that uh, the the leaving tomorrow is not a not a viable option. Right. Yes. And uh, become totally entrenched. That's right. And that uh, see he's he's doing it because he's used this before and sometimes it works. See, but he doesn't use it before when he hasn't got any option. Right. That's the point, and that's what he doesn't. That what he can't get through his head that you can't use that unless you've got an option.
the country idea. That's, you see, it's not there anymore. For sure. That, that's that's they just got to you know we got to realize what plays we can make, and uh, and I think that uh, right now that's not something we're about ready to do. Uh, oh, yeah. We're ready to we're ready to let them have it, but we're going to just let them have it. And uh, Henry, it's going to be difficult for him to have to go home and breathe. He won't have to breathe. He just says recess. Doesn't have to. That's right. But I wouldn't breathe. I just come home and I'd start hitting them. Exactly. To me, which would be my view. But I think if he hears it directly from you, so if you call him and tell him our confidence, so I know what happens here. He goes through all of these tortuous, tortuous. Kissinger has been under as this negotiation goes. And at some point, he uh, actually wouldn't go back to Vietnam. And so they, they, they were having to push that along um, in the negotiations. But you can really tell that this has been a very stressful period for President Nixon, for Henry Kissinger especially, and for Alexander Haig. On an entirely different front, President Nixon, of course, as you know, is making a change at the Republican National Committee. Uh, he's pushing Bob Dole out. Uh, said that they could put George H.W. Bush in under the guise that they need a full-time chairman, and Dole has done the tremendous job. He's, I mean, they won 49 states, uh, and this is the call where somewhere between the last call that we listened to where George Bush is being told, um, and apparent, if you listen to that last call, you know that Bob Dole at this point may not know exactly what's happening. Well, by the time the call you're about to hear happens, Bob Dole is aware, and he's going to be on the call, so you're going to get to hear... Bob Halderman, the chief of staff, President Nixon, Bob Dole, who's the, at that moment, point the current chairman of the Republican Party, who was a little reluctant about giving the seat, the, the position up because he's got an election coming, and unfortunately he's going to be in the crosshairs because of Watergate later, but um, he's going to give away the, 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 the chairmanship because it does need to be a full-time job, and George Bush, of course, is going to be coming over from the United Nations to take it over. Mr. President, are you in with them? No, they're on right now. Right. Mr. President, 
Oh, uh, George? How are you, sir? Well, uh, both Bob and I think you're a damn fool to take the job, but uh, 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 but on the other hand, uh, uh, he's talked it all over with me, and uh, we feel that uh, that uh, this is the best thing for the party, uh, which is more important than any of us. So, uh, well, uh, Bob, I understand that's your view, right? We can write a note. Our line is that they have Strauss from Texas, and ours would be that our Texans can beat their Texans. So right. I don't have to d dance with Gene Westwood. Look at it that way. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. We'll give you something better than that. The other thing is that with regard to the announcement, what we thought we would do would fuzz it up a bit. Like Bob and I have been talking about it by simply saying that you, <clears throat> that, uh, that, uh, that he, he will go out and say that after our talk that he had gone out and canvassed the leaders of the Republican Party and found that uh, they shared his view that uh, there should be a full-time chairman now that the national campaign was over, and he found overwhelming support as a candidate for George Bush. He's then going on to say that, as a matter of fact, we had what we had raised that subject when our first conversation at Camp David, and I said, "Well, I think it'd be great, except I don't. I think George will be reluctant to take it because we've already tentatively felt him out on doing a high position in the Treasury Department, and he's, he's, he he is very interested in staying at the UN. I thought we'd put that in there. I like that. And then that, uh, and then that. Uh, however, I said, I told Bob, I said, you go take a swing at him, and I said, I'll help take a try to try to help help you out, take a swing at it, see if we can get him to do it. And then, then Bob then says he went up to see you at New York, and that, and that you talked to him, and that uh, Bob should also say that I could call, talk to you too, and that after thorough consideration and so forth and so on, that you have decided that if the committee uh, nominates you on the 19th, that you will accept. In the meantime, you will continue in your position at the UN through the session. Uh, your successor uh, will be announced in due time, and that you will, of course. Uh, take care of, his, of the transition situation, and Bob will stay on as national chairman through the <clears throat> inauguration, and of course will stay on as long as it is deemed uh, uh, constructive for the purpose of, uh, of developing the uh, the transition from the old committee to the new. He also is going to say that that he that he has strongly recommended to the president and to you the need for uh, far more coordination. Uh, and working together of uh, the National Committee and the, and the Senate Campaign Committee and the House Campaign Committee and the search for candidates and so forth. That he'd like to say that, and I think that's a good idea to start floating that out. What do you think? I do, too. I, 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 of course, it's what we all believe. And then I think if he says that, then when you start doing it, it isn't going to look as if you're just sort of starting something new that nobody else ever thought of. Yeah. Yes, sir. I, I, I think that's fine. Uh, I have one. At, at this point, then, will there be any White House uh, uh, comment on this thing? Well, the point is that Bob, Bob is going to be making his comment in, in Ziegler's office yes, sir. at the White House. And uh, Ziegler, as a matter of fact, is sitting in the room at the present time listening to this conversation. He's not on the phone. And uh, and uh, the and what uh, what uh, Ziegler will say is that the president is delighted with the recommendation of that uh, Senator Dole has made. He of course will say some very nice things about Senator Dole, and uh, and uh, we uh, and that uh, Senator and that uh, uh, that that Ambassador Bush will have the president's full support. Uh, or words to that effect.
one issue that's going to be voted on here in two days, and if there could be a just reference that the president feels that it's most important that then right. after stay through the session, which was mentioned, yeah, I'll mention that. Saying it, all right, fine. Because that. And, all right, I'll have I'll have the, I'll, I'll, I'll say, I'll say that. However, we're we're for that uh, that he's that he strongly supports it. Yeah. But but that it, but he will. Uh, Bob, as a matter of fact, did mention it. But that he is the president is asking. Uh, uh, Congressman B Ambassador Bush to stay on at the UN through the conclusion of this session because of some important issues that are coming up. Very important. That's right. Because how's that sound? Gail McGee's handling in two days. It's, right. it's that twenty-five percent thing. It's right. critical to it. And that it's uh, that Ambassador Bush will stay on full time at the UN until the session is completed. Mm. How's that sound? I think that sounds good. And and uh, when is the session completed? Well, it, this session ends the nineteenth, and then there's a few odds and ends. Yeah. I mean, we can. But that you'll stay on full time through the session until it is completed. And, of course, we'll, we'll stay on as ambassador until your successor is uh, confirmed, by the Senate. confirmed by the Senate. And the other one happened on January, you end December 19, right? Right. The other happens January 19, and we can work that out. And I would say that, you know, I'll be hanging around in an advisory capacity for a few weeks until you get things worked out. Might be a few years, though, like if that worked out. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, that's fine, sir. And and uh, then I'll. I'm sure I'll be pressed here, but I'm going to stay. And and when you're pressed here, you should say yes. You you did discuss it with uh, the chairman. You discussed it with the president, and with great reluctance in one sense. You yeah. you leave. On the other hand, this is a great challenge. You want to undertake it. You particularly like the emphasis on on the need to uh, to uh, to build. Uh, to uh, broaden well the broaden the base of our party and for I mean the, the greatest candidate search in history. Okay. And then and then all subject to approval of the national committee kind of thing. Yeah, so, and and of course you 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 uh, you're not going to assume your chairman until the committee votes. But uh, you think it'd be all right to say? In fact, I'll have nothing to say of substance on this until until it'd be presumptuous to start. I think that might be a good line. Right? Yeah, yeah. You could say that you uh, you don't want to get into that. It says it wouldn't be presumptuous. You go beyond that, except that except to indicate your general goal, because before the committee votes, they've got to know what you think. Sure. say, well, my general goal is this, but beyond getting it, well, who's going to be this, and what are you going to do for that, and this? Well, I can't get into that until till I'm the chairman. All right. Okay? Okay. All set. Lots of luck. All right. Thank Bye. you, gentlemen. Yeah. Right. Thank you, Mr. President. General Hicks. Hello. Yes, Mr. President. Anything new? Uh, yes, sir. I've finally gotten uh, Henry's message, right. which is uh, is a lengthy one, but which is, uh, I think, quite a bit less uh, pessimistic than his telephone. Really? Uh, what he's going to do is they're going to leave the uh, experts working on the protocols right. uh, there, so it's not going to look like a, uh, a terminal. Act. Yeah, I noticed it. Headline: The Star said, "Very hopeful Henrik's returning." I don't know for Christ's sake, how dumb these assholes be. And then uh, he's also uh, got a, a military plan, which is sort of gradual. Uh, no, 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 no. He's here to wire him immediately. I will not accept graduality. Right, sir. I don't. I will not accept it. Yeah, I don't mean in that context. I mean we have to do reconnaissance. Zuan uh, Tui, or late October, told him that he had to go back because he could not move the Politburo on this DMZ issue. Mm -hmm. 
it's now in a state, according to Henry, uh, that everything has been settled but a couple of issues, and in a way that a message exchange could have a peace agreement. Right. Well, now the thing I want to tell you is this. That I want you to give to Brennan a call. I think you should know this, that uh, I meant, and do it very low-key, that the yes, president doesn't want to embarrass him or anything, but that, because this is, he just never wants to miss per, mix personal with other things, but that he uh, doesn't want it to be any embarrassment to the Soviet government. The, the, the president, of course, will have to cancel. He could not have uh, his, his daughter visiting the Soviet Union at a time that we have to resort to more military activities in Vietnam. Now, you got my point? Yes, sir. I understand. All right. Get that across. It's uh, just a good little signal right across the bow. Right, sir. And I will do it, too. They cannot be there at a time that we're, because, you know, they, they might give them a rough time. That's, that's absolutely right. All right. And I just say that I just wanted to know that, I put it in a way that I just just that, that I just want to inform him that 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 uh, we that, that we didn't want it to be embarrassing him, so that we wanted him to know that the president is prepared that we work it out in a mutually convenient way, so it wouldn't be embarrassing, but that they will not be there in the Soviet Union at a time that that we have to uh, to engage in additional military activities against the North. And that uh, I just wanted to tell him that I didn't. That the president just wants to be sure that that it doesn't cause any strain in our relations. That we have to make this kind of decision. You see what I mean? You do it in a very subtle way. He'll get the point. Right. Exactly. And uh, I talked to him earlier. He called, and I didn't get him too much. So I wanted to keep him on edge. Right. Uh, Henry also said he said that this settlement we can have just as soon as Hanoi gives the okay. And all we have to do is exchange a few messages, and it's done. Uh, the fact is that they've decided to string us along for time. Right. And he said, well, I want Debrina to know, though, that I'm going to cancel the visit of the kids in the event that this doesn't work out. Exactly. It's cold turkey. Exactly. And that I just cannot have them there and, and tell him at a time that I'm going to have to take additional military activities against the North. You understand. He'll get the point. Can you do that? Give him a call right now. Right, sir. Well, he, he's called me. He said he wouldn't be available for anything more until 11 tonight, but I can call him at 11. He's All right. Yeah. You do it. Good. All right, sir. But as a matter of fact, as far as the message is concerned, it isn't quite as bad as Henry. No, no, not at all. And and he feels that uh, we've got to get two on board and that the vice president and I ought to go over there as part of this thing and just lay it down to him uh, because well, we'll just be back in another Well, the only thing that I'm concerned about is this. Al, God damn it, the vice president, you should go, but I want to be able to withdraw something. Now, we've got 29000 Bring it down to fifteen, just like that. Yes, sir. We, well, the, do something. We do something. We don't to be encouraged either. I know. I don't have to encourage you. Do it just quiet. Do it in a quiet way. Yes, sir. Do things. Well, cut off money then. But that's what we're can't we about. can't we discover some things to cut off some money and uh, we're going to drill on it all night. We've got good. several things uh, and uh, layered is. Now I want it. I, I want it done. Right now, though, well, I I don't want to say it publicly. No, I just want I just want I don't want Hanoi to see it, but I want to do some things that will get through to you. Now, you've also I want to be sure that Bunker has the message. Nobody is to communicate with the son of a bitch now without specific authority from Washington. Right, and what Henry did, he just broke 
will not meet or discuss with you anymore. He did that today. He had to meet with him. But uh, we also have an analysis, incidentally, a very careful one by uh, our expert in CIA. And he says the two speech today was very carefully worded not to get himself out on the land. Good. Sorry. That's their judgment. Mm-hmm. They think he'll come, and I think this kick in the ass will do it, and we'll put some screws on it. All right. Fine. All right, sir. Okay, but you understand. I don't want you to do anything with the brain of the night. I just want him to do it in a, in a way that said, look, the president is very, he, put it this way, the president very much, uh, you know, treasures his personal relationship with Brezhnev. Exactly. He does not want to jeopardize that by having his children there on a personal visit with it might embarrass Brezhnev and me. And therefore, he would like to work out a, 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 a conciliatory way to cancel it. <laughs> because of what we're going to have to do on Vietnam. Exactly. Now, that'll get the message through. See my point? Yes, sir. Okay. Very good, sir. All right. right. This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. Talk about Richard Nixon and Lyndon Johnson, the two men that we have profiled the most on our program. Uh, We started at the Kennedy assassination to take you through the end of Vietnam. And clearly nobody is more important to this story than those two gentlemen, Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon. Uh, In December of 1972, at the Johnson Library, President, President, former President Johnson steps up to give a speech on what is probably his crowning achievement as president, the Civil Rights Acts, and continue the work on civil rights that he has done. And when he left office, Richard Nixon stepped in and continued a lot of the work on civil rights. And Richard Nixon doesn't get a lot of the credit that he deserves for it, but he desegregated the public schools in the South. But there is a partnership and a friendship here between Richard Nixon and Lyndon Johnson that's pretty clear, 
I think, uh, to anybody who looks at this time period, especially after President Nixon is elected, and it really kind of points to the nonsense of the Chenault affair and this interfering in the Paris peace talks. Johnson and Nixon appear to me to be friendly. And that shows in Richard Nixon being such an integral part of opening the Lyndon Baines Johnson Presidential Library. And I love presidential libraries. I've been to several of them, uh, to Kennedy's, to Clinton's, uh, to LBJ's a couple of times, to President Nixon and President Reagan's, uh, and to President Carter's one time when I was in high school. And I can tell you I love going to them. There are just a huge wealth of uh, of learning and and just you can, you can get in there and just dive into the history it's it's uh, there are great facilities the museums are and i highly recommend going to them and and i would tell anybody this that that uh i love president nixon and he had a great library ronald reagan has a great library but lbj's is probably the most fascinating one um he is there with all, with the, he, the bark is off. He lets you take a look at him, warts and all. And they have this great Amatron LBJ that'll stand there and tell you jokes too. It's, it's kind of neat. But Richard Nixon went. So before we let you listen to this civil rights speech, which will turn out to be Lyndon Johnson's last uh, address that will be covered for the country, let's go back and take a look from the LBJ Library at the opening of the Johnson Library in May of 1971. And it really shows you this relationship that's there between President Nixon and President Johnson and the impact that both of those men had for good and, you know, bad in the United States. They were giants of that World War II generation. And they brought us through a tumultuous time uh, in this country. And I think by the time Richard Nixon stepped down, despite all the drama that will be coming for him, uh, the country was far better off than it had been. No date stands out more in the history of the LBJ Library than May 22nd, 1971. That's when dignitaries from across the nation gathered on the lawn outside for dedication ceremonies that officially opened the brand new building to the public. Design of the building, led by renowned architect Gordon Bunshaft, had been completed in 1966 and construction started the following year on the northeast corner of the campus of the University of Texas at Austin. By the spring of 1971, A little more than two years after Lyndon Johnson had left the White House, the building was ready. At the center of the dedication were, of course, LBJ himself, Mrs. Johnson, and their family. They were joined by leaders of the University of Texas, who saw the library as a major resource for the intellectual life of the campus. And they were joined by leading politicians and policymakers from the Johnson years, including former Vice President Hubert Humphrey, and Republican Senator Barry Goldwater, who had been LBJ's opponent in the 1964 presidential race. But it was the presence of LBJ's successor, President Richard Nixon, that best indicated the importance of the event for the life of the nation. The heart of America today at this moment is in the heart of Texas, as this distinguished company so well illustrates. It is here to pay tribute to 
the life of a man and the life of his wife as well, who has given 40 years of service to this state and to this nation. The entire nation is indebted to you, President Johnson. President Johnson established a new standard for presidential libraries, not only with the size of his collection, about 31 million pages of documents from across his life, but also with his vow that the institution would reckon honestly and openly with American history during the turbulent years when he had held office. We're all partners in this hopeful undertaking. The people of Texas have built this library. The National Archive will manage this library. There is no record of a mistake or an unpleasantness or criticism that is not included in the files here. I do not know how this period will later be regarded in the years to come, but that's really not the point. This library will show the facts, not just the joy and the triumphs, but the sorrows and the failures too. One of the people on the stage with LBJ on that day in 1971 was Ben Barnes, a political protege of Lyndon Johnson's, who served as the lieutenant governor of Texas during those years. What do you remember best about that day? I remember it was a warm day in May. President Johnson was nervous. He was almost like an expectant father in a waiting room of the hospital. And he was worried about what the reaction that Nixon was going to have to the library, whether there was going to be a big crowd, whether the crowd was going to be enthusiastic. The Vietnam War was still going on. And uh, we had had demonstrations uh, on the campus during the war. I think he was worried about maybe an incident taking place. But it, it was a great day, and his coloring was good that day. It, it was already showing on Johnson's physical appearance that, that he was not a well man. But that day, he, he had uh, rosy cheeks and a, and a smile, uh, and a, a nervous smile, but, but yet a, a, very, a very broad smile. So much that has ensued at the library over the past five decades flowed from the tone that LBJ set on that day. The commitment to openness, the dedication to debate on the big issues of public concern, and the enthusiasm for education and discovery. The LBJ Library is still inspired by those same goals that LBJ laid out half a century ago. Mr. Middleton, uh, esteemed former Chief Justice and Ms. Warren, and all of you wonderful people who have come here to try to make life better for your fellow men. I sat in an adjoining room and watched the panel this morning, and got uh, great satisfaction and compensation in my own way in feeling that all is not lost and all has not been in vain and all we have to do is kind of reorganize and reevaluate and Rome wasn't built in a day, and we can't overcome all the injustices or 
make this a perfect world overnight. But we are on our way, and we are going to do just that before it's over. I don't speak very often or very long. My doctor admonished me not to speak at all this morning, but uh, I'm going to do that because I have some things I want to say to you. I have a touch of sentimentality about me, which has cost me a great deal in my 40 years in public life. I'll say to all you women... Mrs. Rostow and Barbara Jordan, Yvonne Burke and Mrs. Cram and so many of you that I can't list them all, that it's natural for me to get a certain amount of glory by seeing the advances you're making. And I guess it's just human for us to admire and be fond of the other sex. But uh, when I listened in the adjoining room to Burt Marshall and Henry Gonzalez, Clarence Mitchell and Julian Bond, whom I don't know so well but admire a great deal, I said to myself that uh, I love these men more than a man ought to love another man. And uh, that's my way of saying to you uh, what great honor you do me by your presence and participation in these proceedings. Of all the records that are housed in this library, 31 million papers, over a 40-year period of public life, it is the record of this work that we've been discussing the last two days which has brought us here that holds the most of myself within it and holds for me the most intimate meanings. In our system of government, honorable men honestly differ in their perceptions of government and what it's really all about. And today I can speak only of my own perception. And I'm so proud I live in a government where I can do that. I believe that the essence of government lies with unceasing concern for the welfare and dignity and decency and innate integrity of life for every individual. I don't like to say this, and I wish I didn't have to add these words to make it clear, but I will, regardless of color, creed, ancestry, sex, or age. Before I go any further, I want to interject. I'm so happy Ms. Whitney Young is here. 
Her husband gave me great inspiration and leadership, and along with some of his colleagues, advanced this nation centuries in a decade. And he's somewhere doing his good work today, and it's in behalf of his fellow man, wherever he is. I do not want to say that I've always seen this matter in terms of the special plight of the black man as clearly as I came to see it in the course of my life and experience and responsibility. Now let me make it plain that when I say black, as I do a good many times in this little statement. I also mean brown and yellow and red and all other people who suffered discrimination because of their color or their heritage. Every group meets its own special problems, of course, but in a very broad sense, the problem of equal justice applies to us all. Up on the second floor of this library in a special exhibit designed especially for this occasion, you will see the original Emancipation Proclamation by which our great President Abraham Lincoln ordered that the slaves should be freed of their bondage. A decade ago, in the year 1963, we observed the 100th anniversary of that proclamation signing. On Memorial Day of that fateful year, I was called upon as the Vice President to speak at Gettysburg Cemetery, where a century before, words had been spoken which all of us have long remembered. And on that occasion, I said this, until justice is blind to color, until education is unaware of race, until opportunity is unconcerned with the color of men's skin, emancipation will be a proclamation but not a fact. To the extent that the proclamation of emancipation is not fulfilled in fact, to that extent we have fallen short of assuring freedom to the free. When I spoke those words as Vice President, I could not know that the future would present me shortly with the opportunity and the responsibility to contribute more toward fulfilling the fact of emancipation. Even if I could have known what lay ahead, I'm not sure now that I could have believed at that time that the progress which has been won in these past ten years is a fact. Black Americans are voting now where they were not voting at all ten years ago. 
but let me said, say quickly that not enough are voting. Little more than half of all eligible Americans voted in the last national election. I don't know how many of those that didn't vote were black, but I do know this. We have to come up with some kind of plan or incentive to perfect our democracy by seeing that more of our people do vote. And I certainly mean to include more of our black people. Now, I don't know how to do it, and I don't want to get into it from the hip with compulsory voting, but we ask our young men to, we require them by law to all go and register for the draft. We require all of our children to go to school. We require people under a great loss of privilege to have a social security number. I have no doubt but what this would be a better country and a pure democracy if 95% of our people voted and the 5% that didn't had an exemption because of illness or whatever it might be. But when the hand of government reached out to them, if they had to reach in their purse or pocketbook and show a stamp that they had voted, the party of their choice, the individual of their choice, this would be a better land. Black Americans are working now where they were not working 10 years ago. Black Americans, brown Americans, Americans of every color and every condition are eating now and shopping now and going to the bathroom now and riding now and spending nights now and obtaining credit now and giving now and attending classes now going and coming in dignity where and as they were never able to do in years before. I walked out of this room yesterday and looked at this sea of faces and I thought how proud Thurgood Marshall must be. I first met him when he came here on behalf of Herman Sweat so a black boy could come to the University of Texas and to look at this audience in this beautiful university auditorium and see the groups that are participating today must make him feel and must make the groups that supported him feel that all has not been in vain. But now that I've said that, I want to say this. I don't want this symposium to come here and spend two days talking about what we have done. The progress has been much too small. We haven't done nearly enough. I'm kind of ashamed of myself that I had six years and couldn't do more than it did. I'm sure all of you feel the same way about it. I often tell the story about 
that was purported to uh, in a fact about Churchill and the women's lib movement, maybe prohibition movement, a little ahead of our women over here, went into him after the war and said that they were shocked to hear that if all the alcohol he consumed during the war, the brandy that he had drunk were emptied in the room, it would come up to about here. And Churchill looked on with a certain amount of uh, satisfaction and amusement instead of letting his feathers rise up. And he purported to have replied, my dear little ladies, so little have I done, so much yet I have to do. <laughs> so let no one delude themselves that our work is done by unconcern, by neglect, by complacent beliefs, that our labors in the field of human rights are completed, we of today can seed, can seed our future with storms that would rage over the lives of our children and our children's children. Yesterday, it was commonly said the back problem was a southern problem. Today, it is commonly said that the black problem is an urban problem a problem of the inner city. But as I see it, the truth is that the black problem today, as it was yesterday and yesteryear, is not a problem of regions, our states, our cities, our neighborhoods. It is a problem, a concern, and a responsibility of this whole nation. Moreover, and we cannot obscure this blunt fact, the black problem remains what it has always been. The simple problem of being black in a white society. And that is a problem to which our efforts have not yet been addressed. To be black I believe to one who is black or brown or whatnot is to be proud. <laughs> is to be worthy. Is to be honorable. But to be black in a white society is not to stand on level and equal ground. While the races may stand side by side, whites stand on history's mountain and blacks stand in history's hollow. And until we overcome unequal history, we cannot overcome unequal opportunity. That is not, nor will it ever be, a very easy goal for us to achieve. 
individuals and groups who have struggled long to gain advantages for themselves do not readily yield the gains of their struggles or their achievements so that others may have advantages or opportunities. But that is just the point now and always. There is no surrender. There is no loss involved. No advantage is safe, and no gain is secure in this society unless those advantages and those gains are opened up to all alike. Where we have been concerned in the past for groups as groups, now we must become more concerned with individuals as individuals. As we have lifted the groups, the burdens of unequal law and custom, the next thrust of our efforts must be to lift from individuals those burdens of unequal history. Not a white American in all this land would fail to be outraged if an opposing team tried to insert a twelfth man in their football lineup to stop a black, football, black fullback on the football field. Yet off the field, away from the stadium, outside of the reach of the television cameras and the watching eyes of millions of their fellow men, every black American in this land, man or woman, plays out life running against the twelfth man of a history that they did not make and a fate they did not choose. In this challenge, our churches, our schools, our unions, our professions, our trades, our military, our private employers, and our government have a great duty from which they cannot turn. It is the duty of sustaining the momentum of this society's effort to equalize the history of some of our people so that we may open opportunity equally for all of our people. Some may respond to these suggestions with exclamations of shock and dismay. Such proposals, they will say, ask that special consideration be given to black Americans rather than giving equal consideration to all Americans. I can only hear such protests through ears that are tuned by a lifetime to listening to the language of evasion. All that I hear now, I have heard before, for 40 long years, in many forms and many forums. Give them the vote. I saw a murder almost committed because I said that in 37. Most people said, 
unthinkable. Give them the right to sit wherever they wish on the bus. Impossible. Give them the privilege of sitting at the same hotel, using the same restroom, eating in the same counter, joining the same club, attending the same classroom. Never, never. Well, this cry of never I've heard since I was a little boy all my life. And what we commemorate on this great day is some of the work which has helped in some of the areas to make never now. And I do not to speak fulsomely. Most of that never would have done would have been done without men of Burke Marshall and Roy Wilkins, Whitney Young, Chief Justice Warren, Julian Bond, all of those that are here today, Vernon Jordan, just never would have been done. Now, here's what I want to say. That what I have said is precisely the work which we must continue. And this is a whole important part of this meeting, not what we have done, what we can do. So much, so little have we done. It oughtn't to take much place, what we must do. So I think it's time to leave aside the legalisms and euphemisms and the eloquent evasions. It's time we get down to business of trying to stand black and white on level ground. For myself, I believe it's time for all of us in government and out to face up to the challenge. We must review and reevaluate what we've done and what we've done. In specific areas, we must set new goals and new objectives and new standards. Not merely what we can do to try to keep things quiet, but what we must do to make things better. Now, how much time are we given to that in this meeting? How much time are we going to give in the days ahead? How are we going to employ that time? Who's going to bring our groups together and who's going to select that leadership and what's that leadership going to do specifically I believe that we must direct our thought and our effort to many many fields and I don't have a great staff and little I can contribute in the way of leadership but if I can leave the thought with those of you who do make up a great staff and who served as my staff. I want to suggest a few little relatively unimportant thoughts as just some of the things to be put on your agenda. Are the federal government and the state government and the foundation and the churches, the universities doing what they can and all that they should to assure enough black scholarships for young blacks in every field? The answer is no. 
very little. And it gets back to the same thing. Herman Sweat can come to this university now, but as someone said on the panel this morning, Henry Gonzalez, I think, if he doesn't, what good does it do him sit at the counter and get a cup of coffee if he doesn't have fifty cents to get it? And most of them just don't have it. That's why they're not here. It's not their mother or their father doesn't want them here. It's not that they don't have an ambition to be here. They just can't do it. And we've got to level out that ground, son. Are our professions such as law and medicine and accounting and engineering and dentistry and architecture taking the initiative, sounding the call to make certain that their educational programs are so planned and so conducted that blacks are being prepared for the leadership courses and are being given the support that they must have if they are to complete the courses and to have genuine opportunities to establish themselves in positions of leadership, professional careers, and things of that matter after their college days. Are our trade unions and all those concerned with vocational occupation doing the same to open up apprenticeships and training programs so that the blacks, the group I spoke of, have a fair chance at entering and a fair chance of succeeding in these fields that are so vital to the future of our nation and to our country at this very moment? Are our employers who have already made a start toward opening jobs to the blacks doing what they can and should in order to make certain that blacks qualify for advancement on the promotion ladder and that the promotion ladder itself reaches out for the blacks as it does for the others in our society. What I'm saying is that we cannot take care of the goals to which we've committed ourselves simply by adopting a black star system. It is good and it is heartening and it is satisfying to see individual blacks succeeding as stars in the field of politics and athletics and entertainment and other activities where they have high visibility, such as Clarence Mitchell referred to in his family. And uh, I felt almost as good in my own election, not quite as good, when Barbara and Yvonne were elected this year because I thought that we were moving forward. And I, I enjoyed uh, knowing of those elections about as much as I did my own. But we must not allow the visibility of a few to diminish the efforts to satisfy what is our real responsibility to the still unseen millions who are faced with that basic problem of being black in a white society. So our objective must be to assure that all Americans play by the same rules and all Americans play against the same odds. Who among us would claim that that's true today? 
I feel this is the first work of any society which aspires to greatness. So let's be on with it. We know there's injustice. We know there's intolerance. We know there's discrimination and hate and suspicion. And we know there's division among us. But there is a larger truth. We have proved that great progress is possible. We know how much still remains to be done. And if our efforts continue, and if our will is strong, and if our hearts are right, and if courage remains our constant companion, then, my fellow Americans, I am confident we shall overcome. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.